0: Chapter eighteen of the Four Faces by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter eighteen. Contains another surprise. Lights were in most of the windows as though a party were in progress. Preston rang the bell. It was answered at once by a maid who had answered it in the morning, and before Preston had time to speak, the maid asked us if we would come in. This time she showed us into a room a good deal larger than the one in which I had been interviewed by Gastrell in the morning, very beautifully furnished on all sides what is termed the feminine touch was noticeable, and among a number of framed photographs on one of the tables I recognized portraits of well-known society people, several with autograph signatures, and one or two with affectionate inscriptions. I wondered to whom they had been presented, and to whom the affectionate inscriptions were addressed. We waited a few minutes, wondering what would happen next, and who would come in to see us, for the maid had not even asked our names, though I saw that she had recognized me. For a moment it occurred to me that we ought to have changed into evening clothes, and I was about to tell Preston so when the door opened and Jasmine Gastrell entered, accompanied to my amazement, by Dulcie Challoner. I think even Preston was taken aback, and it took a great deal to astonish preston osborne i could see was dumbfounded jasmine gastrell was the first to speak and she addressed me without looking either at osborne or preston good evening mr Barrington," she said with one of those wonderful smiles of hers which seemed entirely to transform her expression this is an unexpected pleasure how strangely different she now looked from the way she had looked at me in Cumberland Place when, disguised as Sir Aubrey Belston, I had pretended to read her past life. She turned to Jack, and raising her eyebrows as though she had only that instant recognized him, Why, she exclaimed, it's Mr. Osborne. I had no idea we were to have the pleasure of seeing you here tonight. Had you Dulcie? Dulcie, who was standing by quite unconcernedly, "'turned at once to me without answering Mrs. Gastrell's question. "'Dear old Mike,' she said, "'how delightful of you to have come. "'I do hope you have entirely recovered. "'You looked so ill when you saw me off at Paddington this morning "'that I felt anxious about you all the way home. "'What was the matter with you? "'Have you any idea?' "'I was so staggered, first at finding her at this house again, "'and then at her addressing me in the calm way she did that for some moments I could not answer. Jack and Preston, now in conversation with Jasmine Gastrell, did not notice my hesitation. At last, collecting my scattered thoughts, I answered, I am quite well, Dulcie. There was nothing really much amiss with me this morning. I thought you knew that. I stopped abruptly. What else could I say? Under the circumstances I could not well speak about the telegram, and say why we had arrived in this way at such an unusual hour i suppose you have come about dick she went on suddenly he is asleep now he is so tired poor little chap dulcie i burst out impetuously under my breath casting a hurried glance at the other three who still in conversation did not appear to notice us dulcie what is the meaning of all this why are you here why is dick here i want to see you I must see you alone as soon as possible. There is so much I want to say to you, want to ask you. Such a lot has happened during the past day or two that I can't understand and that I want to have explained. Tell me, my darling, I went on hurriedly, when and where we can meet, alone. She gave a delightful little laugh and tapped me playfully with her fan. She and Jasmine were in evening dress. Then, looking roguishly up into my eyes, she went on, "'So far as Dick is concerned, everything is easily explained. When I got home this morning I felt very unwell. I found Father terribly anxious at my absence, and Aunt Hannah in what I call one of her fits of tantrums. I went to lie down, and while I was asleep Father came and looked at me. For some reason he got it into his head that I looked very ill, and just then Connie arrived in her car.' She went to Holt direct from London, and she wanted to explain to Father the reason she didn't take me home last night, and at the same time make her apologies for the anxiety she knew she must unintentionally have caused him. Father, you know, likes Connie very much. After seeing me in bed he had jumped to the conclusion that I was really very ill, and ought to see a doctor at once. Connie said that as she was going straight to Newbury, she would, if he liked, send Dr. claughton out to Holt. Then father said something about letting Dick know I was ill, and Connie volunteered to send a telegram to Eton, signed with her father's name, and father said he wished she would. And that is the explanation of the whole affair. "'Explanation?' I exclaimed. "'I don't call that half an explanation. What about James being told to meet Dick at Paddington, and then not turning up?' "'Oh, that was a mistake of Connie's. James was in town to-day.' and Connie understood father to say that he would telegraph to James and tell him to meet Dick at Paddington. After telegraphing to Eden in father's name from Newberry she found she had made a mistake, so then she telegraphed to Doris Lorimer to meet Dick. After the doctor had seen me he told father there was nothing to be in the least alarmed about, in fact gave father to understand that his imagination had played pranks with him. So then father telephoned to Connie at the Rook Hotel and they decided there was no need for Dick to come home, and Connie suggested Dick spending the night here and returning to Eton to-morrow. I did not speak for some moments. At last I said, Dulcie, who told you all this? Why, Connie, of course. Father had to attend an important magistrate's meeting in Newbury this afternoon, and, as I seemed quite well again, she got father's leave to bring me up to town again to meet some friends of hers who were here to-night, "'Now, are you satisfied, Mike?' "'No, I am not,' I answered bluntly. Dulcie, have you seen Dick since he arrived here?' "'No, he had to go to bed before I arrived, and Connie said I had better not disturb him.' "'My darling,' I said a moment later, "'I must see you alone. When can I?' "'Would tomorrow morning suit you, dear?' she asked, looking at me with her frank brown eyes as i returned the gaze i found it impossible to believe that she had wittingly deceived me that morning or indeed at any time and yet-yes shall we say at twelve o'clock i suggested and shall i call here for you that will do beautifully oh mike my darling she said quickly under her breath i hope you still love me just as much as you did i don't know why but somehow i sometimes feel that you mistrust me even that you suspect me of something or other. I don't know what.' Dulcie. I exclaimed impulsively, and I made as though to seize her hand, then remembered we were not alone, and refrained. Dulcie, there are things I want you to explain to me, mysteries that only you can clear up. I don't really mistrust you, my own darling. Indeed, indeed I don't. But I mistrust some of the people you mix with and have made friends of. More than that, I happen to know that some of them are no better than adventurers, and I want to get you away from them. What house is this we are in? I mean, whose is it, and who lives here?' But at that instant our conversation was interrupted by Jasmine Gastrell. "'Oh, you lovers!' she exclaimed, laughing as she looked across at us. "'What heaps and heaps lovers seem to have to tell each other after being parted for a few hours!' "'It reminds me of my own young days,' she added archly, for she looked barely seven-and-twenty. "'Mr. Osborne has just told me, Dulcie, that he is asked to stay at Eldon Hall for Lord Cranmere's son coming of age on the twenty-eighth. I have been invited, too. I do wish you were going to be there. Connie has accepted.' Ten minutes later, as the three of us sauntered slowly along Willow Road, we realized—at least I can answer for myself that in spite of our careful scheming and our complete confidence in the success of our plan we had been cleverly outwitted. Not for a moment had Preston or Jack Osborne believed the long story that Jasmine Gastrell had related to them while Dulcie and I had been engrossed in conversation, a story it is unnecessary to repeat, though it had been told apparently with a view to leading them to think that Mrs. Gastrell was shortly to make a tour round the world. In the same way I had not been deceived by the ingenuous tissue of implications and falsehoods that Connie Stapleton had poured into Dulcie's ear, and that Dulcie had innocently repeated to me. What most astonished me, however, was the rapidity with which Connie Stapleton and Jasmine Gastrell seemed able to concoct these ingenuous and plausible narratives to account for anything and everything that happened on any occasion a single discrepancy for instance in the story that dulcie had just repeated to me would have brought the whole fabric of what appeared to be true statements though i believed them to be false crumbling to the ground but there had been no such discrepancy everything that had occurred during the afternoon in relation to dick the telegram sent to Eton, doris lorimer's meeting him in place of sir roland butler had been accounted for simply and quite rationally and yet i felt firmly convinced the statements must in the main be a series of monstrous untruths a belief in which preston with all his experience concurred only two points puzzled me neither jasmine gastrell nor connie stapleton nor indeed anybody else could by any possibility have known that preston jack and i contemplated calling at the house in willow road that evening how came it then that everything had been so skilfully arranged with a view to disarming our suspicions when we did call that i confess was a problem so complicated that it formed the one and only argument in favour of the story that dulcie had repeated to me being in part true the other puzzling point was dulcie's being at that house that night and her knowing that dick was there surely if connie stapleton and her accomplices had intended to kidnap Dick for the purpose of extorting money from Sir roland, they would not intentionally have let Dulcie know what was happening. And arguing thus with myself, I began at last to wonder if, after all, I had been mistaken. If, after all, Mrs Stapleton had not invented that story, but had told Dulcie the truth. I confess that the more I thought it all over, and the harder I tried to sift possible facts from probable fiction, the more hopelessly entangled I became. Perhaps the strongest argument in favor of my theory that we were being cleverly and systematically hoaxed lay in Dick's discovery of the cipher messages in the morning post. There could at any rate be no getting away from the cipher message which had appeared on the previous day, and that ran Osborne and Barrington suspect. Take precautions then i thought again of dulcie it was appalling almost incredible that she should be allowed to associate with men and women whom we practically knew to be adventurers and who might be not merely adventurers but criminals masquerading as respectable members of society yet i was impotent to prevent her it was of course sir roland's duty to forbid her to mix with these people but then Sir Roland from being powerfully attracted by the young widow Connie Stapleton was, as I had long ago guessed, becoming deeply enamoured of her, so that far from preventing Dulcie from associating with her, Dulcie with her strange infatuation for the woman, he deliberately encouraged the intimacy. Well, next morning, at any rate, I should see Dulcie alone, I reflected, with a feeling of satisfaction and then I would have it out with her and go into the whole affair thoroughly, speaking to her with brutal frankness, even at the risk of hurting her feelings and incurring her displeasure I would tell her everything I knew and all that I suspected. Something must be done, and at once, to put an end to her absurd attachment to the widow. I had thought it all over quite long enough. It was now time to act. And Dick, too! I must get hold of him and question him narrowly to find out of his story of what happened from the time he left me on Paddington Platform, and went and stood beside Doris Latimer under the clock, and his arrival at Willow Road Hampstead tallied with the story that Connie Stapleton had told Dulcie, and that Dulcie had related to me, for I somehow fancied that the two narratives might differ to some extent, if only in their minor details. We were approaching Hampstead Tube Station when Preston, turning to me from Jack Osborne, with whom he had been in close conversation, inquired, "'Has Sir Roland lately said anything to you, Mr. Barrington, that interested you particularly? Has he thrown out any hint of any sort?' I reflected. "'Nothing that I can recollect,' I said. "'Have you reason to suppose that he has something of special interest that he wants to say to me?' i have but until he speaks it it is not for me to make any comment we had reached the tube station jack booked to russell square preston to piccadilly circus and i took a ticket to bond street those being the stations nearest to our respective destinations are you aware preston said soon after the train had started that since we left my house and went to dine in soho we have been followed i wanted to be perfectly certain before telling you but I see now that I was right in my suspicion. Look to your left presently, one at a time, and at the end of the compartment you'll see quite an ordinary-looking man, apparently a foreigner, smoking a cheroot, the man seated alone with a lot of hair on his face. "'You wouldn't notice him if he passed you in the street, would you?' he said after we had looked, but I have noticed him all the evening. He was in Warwick Street when we all came out of my house. He followed us to Soho he was in gerrard street awaiting us when we came out of the restaurant after dining he came after us to hampstead he has followed us from willow road to the tube station and he is in this compartment now for the purpose of observing us i want you each not to forget what he is like and in a few minutes when we all separate i shall be curious to see which one of us he follows to know which of us he is really shadowing jack was the first to alight he bade us each a cheery good-night after reminding us that we were all three to meet on the following afternoon and hurried out the hairy man with the cheroot remained motionless reading his newspaper my turn came next at oxford circus station as i rose i noticed the man carelessly fold up his newspaper cram it into his coat pocket and get up rather to my surprise i did not after that see him again he was not with me in the carriage of the train I changed into, nor was he apparently on the platform at Bond Street Station when I got out. As I pushed my latch key into the outer door of South Moulton Street Mansions I glanced quickly up and down the street, but so far as I could see there was no sign of the man. However a surprise awaited me. Upon entering my flat I noticed a light in the sitting-room at the end of the little passage. The door stood ajar. Entering quickly, I uttered an exclamation of amazement, for in the big armchair in front of the fire, the fire burned as though it had lately been made up, Dick lay back fast asleep, his lips slightly parted, his chest rising and falling in a way that showed how heavily he slept. Recovering from my amazement, I stood for a minute or two watching him. How delightful he looked when asleep like that, and what a strong resemblance he bore to Dulcie! But! how came he to be here? And how came Dulcie to have told me less than an hour before that he was in the house in Hampstead and asleep there? Gazing down upon him still, I wondered what really had happened since I had last seen him that evening, and what story he would have to tell me when he awoke. My man had gone to bed, for it was now past midnight. Considering where I had better put Dick to sleep, my glance rested upon some letters lying upon the table. Mechanically I picked them up and looked at the handwritings on the envelopes. Nothing of interest, I decided, and I was about to put them down again, unopened, when I noticed there was one from Holt that I had overlooked. The handwriting was Sir Rowland's. Hastily tearing open the envelope, I pulled out the letter. It was quite short, but its contents sent my heart jumping into my mouth, and had dick not been asleep close by in the chair i believe i should have used some almost unprintable language oh the fool the silly doddering abject old fool i exclaimed aloud as i flung the open letter down on the table and began to pace the room in a fury of indignation no fool like an old fool oh those words of wisdom the man who first uttered them should have a monument erected to his memory i continued aloud then suddenly as dick stirred in his sleep i checked myself abruptly the letter sir roland challoner had written to me ran as follows my dear mike as you and dulcie are engaged i dare say you will be interested and you may be surprised to hear of another engagement i have asked dulcie's beautiful friend mrs stapleton to become my wife and she has done me the honour of accepting my proposal write to congratulate me my dear mike and come down again soon to stay with us. Yours affectionately, Roland Challoner. End of Chapter eighteen recording by tom Weiss tom's audiobooks dot com